Hello, this is Marielle Dodato. Before we start today's podcast, I just wanted to mention a few things. Since Vincent has been on active duty and dealing with the coronavirus response in New Jersey, we haven't been able to record the podcast as we usually do in the same room, but we were able to download an app, Squadcast, that allows us to record virtually. So if the sound is a little off today, that's why, but we were still able to record a really fun and informative podcast about the coronavirus pandemic here in New Jersey. So we hope you enjoy. Hello, my name is Marielle Dodato. And I'm Vincent Salomino. And this is NJ Voices. So I today- I don't even know what episode of NJ Voices it is, Marielle, because <laughs> every day blends together. <laughs> yeah, I was saying we hadn't done one in, in weeks, but I think it's been more than months now since everything with coronavirus uh, bubbled up. Um, Could be years. Could be years at this point. There's no way of knowing. I've thrown out all my calendars. I've been wearing the same pants for three days. But uh, in, in any case, I, we're actually very excited to be here today. We have um, a really, really cool guest. Her name is Margie Donlin. Some of you listening may already know her. Uh, she is a councilwoman for the Township of Ocean. But more relevant to this podcast, I think today we want to talk about COVID-19 in New Jersey. Margie's also a physiatrist at an inpatient rehab facility taking care of patients who have uh, limitations in mobility and function. And we thought this this combination of working both in the medical field, but also being an elected official during this time is a really interesting perspective. And we wanted to just sit down and talk and and talk about the things that people need to know about COVID-19 in New Jersey. So welcome, Margie. Thank you for welcome. having me. It's great to be here. So I, I just want to kick it off by, by today. We're recording this on Wednesday, April 8th, and this has been a very fluid several weeks, um, you know, joking about time, but it's been you know, a, a pandemic that has grown. Uh, I recall when, you know, we had 44 uh, cases, when we had zero cases of positives in New Jersey. And as of today, there have been uh, 47,437 New Jerseyans uh, and among, who have tested positive for coronavirus or COVID-19. And among that, uh, unfortunately, 1,504 individuals have have died, have been fatalities from it. So, just curious, Margie, um, what has been your experience in as a professional or an elected official in dealing with COVID-19? Well, when we first started getting the warnings um, that this was coming closer to New Jersey, um, it, you know, it was listening to the news, you know, kind of feeling distant from it a little bit, but listening to the news and realizing how far behind we were on testing and our capability for testing and knowing deep down that that was going to set us back a lot. So there was a lot of frustration knowing what needed to be done and feeling powerless to do anything about it and just watch, you know, as we were so far behind on testing to, to kick this off. I remember being on a, a call with the uh, Monmouth County Health Department before we, I think we might've had one or two cases in in Monmouth County at that time. And we were learning about how many how many tests were available and it was really a limited number and they were being sent all across the country. So it was limited across the country and even more limited for New Jersey. And I knew right off the bat, being behind on testing, we were gonna miss a time window that was so critical for this in terms of containing containing it. So it, it was it was it was angering and nerve wracking and it was it was very frustrating. Um, to watch this early on happen that way. And then as, you know, it got closer and closer, 
particularly in my facility, when we started making decisions about how to protect ourselves and policies, it was like it was very fluid. So we didn't we need we needed to change things day by day. And and that was that it was also anxiety producing because we didn't have a set protocol. But, you know, as this virus is new, we all had to learn as we went along. So, so yeah, that leads into another question I had. So we have a certain number of positive test results in the state, but you, you did touch on a shortage of tests. So I, at this point, maybe this is an impossible question to answer, but how accurate do you think the current numbers are for New Jersey right now? Do you think there are many more positive cases that just haven't been able to get a test or, or have, have we caught up? What is your, like, what do you think? So I think the current numbers that we're seeing today, like the cases that were diagnosed today, really that's a reflection of patients who were sick, started getting sick a week or more ago. So it's a little bit like looking into the, the sky at night and seeing the stars. And that light we see is from millions of billions of years ago. Um, so the test results that we see today are really a reflection of what, what was happening two weeks ago. So I would suspect we have more cases than we actually have positive numbers for. Having said that, so I think there's some anxiety, you know, when you see the numbers go up, they're expected to go up. I think as we get our social distancing and some of the policies in place, the lockdown that we that uh, Governor Murphy put into place a few weeks ago, we'll start and we have started to see a, a, a slowdown. So it but it takes like a two week delay, too. So we're seeing, yes, an increase in numbers of, of patients, but we're also seeing the effects of the policies that were put into place a few weeks ago, which is definitely beginning to flatten that curve. In terms of testing, there are more tests available. Initially, it was incredibly frustrating because I knew patients who couldn't get a test unless they had a known exposure to someone in China, even though they had symptoms. Now the tests are easier to get if you're symptomatic. There's a faster turnaround. So instead of taking a few days to get the results back, you can get them back within 24 hours. And I think that window might be even shorter in the next couple of weeks with new testing capacity. Um, but you have to remember when somebody actually goes for a test, they're, they're, they're usually symptomatic, which means that they've already had the virus for at least four to five days. And by the time you get the test result back, that's another day. By the time it's actually reported to the health department, that's another you know defined period of time, maybe a day or so. So you're really looking at, you know, it takes about a week altogether to see what to, to see what's happening. One of the interesting things to me, and you mentioned <clears throat> you mentioned the governor's policy response, and you mentioned the stay-at-home recommendations, as well as now we're seeing closure of non-essential businesses. We're seeing uh, closing of state parks and county parks just within the last 24 hours from when we're recording. What is your reaction to the individuals who are critical of that policy and describe it as government overreach? So I, I, you know, I, I think we all had, for me in particular, the fact that the, the, the parks being closed, that was a tough one because that's the place I go to seek refuge. Um, but I absolutely understand it because in a number of the parks, there was a lack of respect for social distancing um, and it had to be done, especially with the, the weather getting warmer um, and, um, and the risk of more people coming into contact with each other, especially during this critical time. So 
I absolutely understand it, even though it is hard. Um, in terms of civil liberties, I think in this particular case where you have a public health emergency, given the severity and the consequences of of not having those policies in place, which are pretty severe, it's something that we we have to do as for the public health, for the public good. If there's ever a time that we need to do it, it's now. And I know, in, especially as Americans, we really enjoy and takes very seriously our civil liberties. And that that's a tough thing, I think, for Americans to do. But we've come together to do that, which has said a lot, and it's made a difference in in the in what's what we're seeing in the hospitals and in terms of the trend. So it's paying off. Awesome. So I talking about symptoms for me as someone with both allergies and anxiety, this has probably been the worst time for coronavirus to pop up in the year uh, seasonally. I find myself blowing my nose, having a scratchy throat, many tiny panic attacks that these are coronavirus and then I take a Claritin and everything's fine. Is there a way to differentiate between allergy symptoms or symptoms of a common cold and coronavirus? So I say allergies and coronavirus are fairly easy to distinguish. With allergies, you don't have a fever. You usually don't have shortness of breath. The main crossover symptom there is, is, is a cough. With coronavirus, you usually don't have um, sneezing or runny nose. You usually don't have itchy eyes. So I'd say those two are pretty easily distinguished. With a common cold, you can have a cough. You can sometimes have a fever. The shortness of breath isn't there usually with a common cold. Again, the nasal symptoms, the, the, those aren't there with the uh, coronavirus. So the main symptoms for coronavirus are shortness of breath, cough, usually a dry cough, and fevers. And I know that this has been referenced in the media, but what would you say, because I've actually heard it from otherwise intelligent people who say, I'm young, if I get this, I'll be fine. What would you say to that person who maybe lives with a parent or someone who has a compromised immune system? So yes, the majority of people who get this will be fine. 80% have mild symptoms and will recover. However, because the transmission of this virus often happens and can often happens when you're asymptomatic and you can be asymptomatic for on average four to five days, but up to, you know, 10 to 14 days and sometimes even longer, you might not know that you're transmitting it to other people. And if you live with an older parent um, or someone who's immunocompromised, you are putting them at risk for higher complications. The other thing is it's it's really, you know, it's it's been surprising and and disheartening to see, and I had when we had heard about this coming and we had we're trying to learn as much as we can about it. We really thought it was the elderly only that was going to be affected. But we have seen a number of cases who who are younger, who don't have any comorbidities, who have, um, you know, had to be uh, intubated and put on ventilators, machines that do the work of breathing. Um, some have lost their lives. So it's not a definite thing that if you're young and healthy, you're not going to face the most severe consequences of this virus, which is pretty scary. Yeah, talking about transmission. So the CDC now and now Governor Murphy just signed an executive order saying that all retails, uh, all central retail that are still open 
have to be wearing gloves, face masks. I, I can't find a face mask anywhere. I know a lot of people that are having the same problem. Are cloth face masks that you can wear at home, is that is that good enough? Is it better than nothing? Are all fabrics made equal? Uh, what would your recommendation be for people who just can't find anything at the CVS? Yep, anything you can use. A bandana. You know, when I go skiing, I use the... the um balaclavas, you know, anything you can wrap around your your face and cover your nose and your mouth while you're out in public um, would be great. The, the, the main reason for this is not to protect you necessarily, but to prevent asymptomatic transmission to others. So the more universal we can do this, the, the less, uh, the, the lower the risk we can have of transmission in public. Um, especially when you're in close proximity with other people, you know, especially for perhaps longer periods of time, like at the grocery store. I would say, I don't, I have, I don't have a study in front of me, but I would say they're probably as effective as wearing a surgical mask, the basic uh, surgical mask that that we've been wearing. Um, I do wear an N95 particulate mask, that I, or it's an N95 respirator when I see patients. Those types of masks are better at protecting you, but because there's such a shortage of them, they should only be used by healthcare workers. And right now they're only indicated for uh, if you're working with a known positive COVID patient or a su- suspected positive. Um, I think it's, it's a little tricky though, because sometimes in healthcare, we don't know who's going to end up being positive or not. So especially if you work very closely with them, you want to be as protected as possible. But I think if you have an N95 mask somewhere in the basement, or if you happen to buy one, and you're not in healthcare, please get in touch with somebody who is in healthcare, because they might not have one. I have uh, one that was given to me by a friend a few weeks ago, who was concerned for my safety. And I'm very grateful for that. I've been wearing it every day for the past three weeks, four weeks. And I wish everybody had one in healthcare. It's not the situation right now. We definitely have a shortage, and it is, it is, uh, it's scary because we're not all protected equally. One of the things that's really that I found inspiring in the last several weeks has been the tremendous outpouring of support for healthcare workers and people who are working to mitigate the effects of the virus and and stop the spread of the virus. Is there anything that stands out to you as a, as a as a positive takeaway from what you've seen as a medical professional or a councilwoman? Oh, yes. Yeah, the support has been incredible. I've never, I mean, in my professional career, I've never felt the support. You know, I had mentioned to somebody off, you know, somebody I'd, I had I'd spoken to on the phone that who was still working and it was a transaction on the phone that and she and uh, she said she said she was still working, and I said oh, I'm still working too. And I'm a physician, and she had she said, oh, thank you so much for your service. And that was the first time anyone said anything to me like that. So it was it was very moving. And when I see people, you know, doing anything for healthcare workers, like uh, making pizzas or bringing food to them, it's it's really heartwarming, and it's it gets very it gets me very emotional. But you know, it's so important because. I think healthcare workers need that moral support right now. A lot of them feel underprotected. A lot of them feel underpaid and underappreciated um, and scared. And I think that appreciation from the public has is wonderful. 
I know like, you know, Senator Vin Gopal through his uh, civic organization has donated N95 masks to organizations that need them. And that includes the police, the, the, uh, the uh, first responders, the, um, and, and hospitals, home care workers. There's, there's just this endless number of people who come in close contact with people on a daily basis who need that protection. And I'm so grateful for people who have stepped up to the plate, who've donated to that cause to get those masks available to everyone who needs them. You mentioned Senator Gopal, uh, a member of the state Senate. Is there anything that we can do once we're beyond this from a policy or a programmatic perspective? And I'm putting you on the spot, but do you think that there's like local or county or state policies or, or efforts that could be put into place to be better prepared next time? Yeah, I definitely think we need more funding um, in public health. Um, I know, you know, I've seen our public health, you know, our, our local county public health regional department do very well, but they are limited because of, you know, the, the number of people there and the, the the size of this crisis. So I think, you know, even we need to fund public health and have more people, for example, just contact tracing, calling people, saying, you know, who are you in contact with, giving people specific instructions, because otherwise that falls on the back of physicians or nurses or social workers who are might not be have that training. We really need more public health funding um, and preparedness as we emerge from this. You know, what's going to happen next? I think, you know, that's the million dollar question, you know, when we come out of this. I think we really need to have in place a good system for tracing people who end up with the virus and you know reaching out to their contacts, isolating them, um, and that's going to take a robust uh, public health response. What do you see happening when all of this is over? Do you just see everyone's door opening? We all rush out into the streets. Is it more measured than that? Are some places going to to be allowed to be open first? I mean, again, maybe this is one of those questions that doesn't necessarily have an answer yet, but what are your thoughts? I think it'll probably be, probably be an unwinding, just mm -hmm. kind of like we had a wind, wind up to this, you know, when the governor said, okay, no gatherings greater than 250, and then it was 50, and then it was 10. So we might have something like that where, you know, okay, it's okay to, you know, gather in small groups, but not more than a certain number. Um, I think that, you know, I hope our behavior will change in public, at least until we get a vaccine. I think that's the end, you know, that'll be really the, the holy grail in all of this and, and the true end, which will take at least 12 to 18 months. So we are still a ways out from that. But I do see that we will probably have changes in our behavior. I don't think people are going to be shaking hands or hugging, <laughs> you know, in public. I think we will have to start opening businesses back up as soon as our numbers are low enough that we can isolate and contact trace those contacts. Because once we have the numbers so low that we can do that, we can do a better job of containing it. But I do think we will open up things gradually again. Um, probably not all at once um, kind of thing. How, how do you think as an elected official with people's, you're talking about changes in interpersonal behavior, how are you going to campaign for office without being able to shake someone's hand? 
Oh, that's a good question. Fortunately, I don't have to do that this year. Hopefully, <laughs> it'll be after the vaccine for me. <laughs> but I'm just curious, like how this, you're right, that this will have second and third order effects on, on our society. And so does that mean that we won't have carnivals and county fairs or knocking on people's doors, asking them for their votes? Will that be something different? You know, we might, you know, the the larger gatherings, that kind of thing, it might not happen until we have a vaccine, unless we have a, unless we can develop that robust public health response system, where we can really isolate and isolate those patients. I think in particular, we really need to continue to protect the elderly because they are the most vulnerable. But I think this is going to have some changes to our behavior, at least over the next 18 months, at least until we get a vaccine. Has the the pandemic impacted, of course it has, but can you describe how it's impacted businesses in Ocean, where you live and where you represent people? So it's impacted everybody. Um, we, at, in, Ocean, in Ocean Township, we are supporting local businesses by doing takeout. You know, we have a, a Facebook page where people are saying, oh, I got takeout from here and um, support this business and this, you know, and so that's been going on, but, uh, local businesses absolutely are, are suffering. I think it's, um, it's, it's going to be a tough road. Small businesses are, are definitely taking tough hit right now. Um, and I think the assistance for that obviously is going to have to come at the state level and the federal level, but we're doing as much as we can locally to support, um, uh, purchasing from small businesses and, and that sort of thing. I'm going to ask a a dumb question. Should people be worried about getting takeout in a time of, in the, you know, time of coronavirus? I would say um, there is some risk, but it's, it's a rather low risk. Um, It's, uh, it's usually the face-to-face contact. So, the longer you the longer you spend face to face with somebody, your risk is higher. So if you're just if you're getting takeout, there is a risk of of it being on any surfaces that you touch. For example, the the paper bag. Yes, there is a risk, but it's fairly low compared to other risks such as sitting next to somebody or being in in a closed space with somebody for you know more than five minutes. Mario, let me flip the tables. We've been channeling our energy and our questions at Margie. I have a question for you. Interesting. I'm ready. What do you think? What do you think of the lunatics who are saying that this is caused by 5G wireless towers? Uh, Vincent, I can't say that on the air. You can't make me say that on the air. <laughs> so, for our listeners who are unaware, on the internet, there's been a meme. Uh, that the COVID nineteen transmission was caused by the installation of five G wireless towers worldwide. People have gone as far as to harass uh, utility workers in England and to light those poles on fire. Uh, Margie, you're a doctor. Can we confirm that it has nothing to do with wireless 5G? Yes, I can confirm that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I've heard a lot of other theories too, uh, but I'm not going to discuss them right now. (laughs) <laughs> past the two-hour time limit that we have on on this app, I think. <laughs> what do you think about the people who are calling it? And we don't have to use this if you don't want to. But like, what do you think about the people who are calling this the Chinese virus? Right, like putting a, a, a an eth- ethnic or or national. 
It's not. It's there's a name to it. It's COVID-19. That's the name of the virus and that's what we should call it. I don't know anyone else who's calling it the Chinese virus other than our president and a few, and the people who listen to him. Um, certainly no doctors are calling it the Chinese virus. We have a name for it. One last question. If there was some, one thing that you can say to the public right now about the coronavirus, if there was one thing that people needed to know, what would it be? Social distancing is working. So please keep doing it. Please stay at home, especially over the next few weeks. It is making a huge difference in how quickly this virus has uh, spread. It's protecting the hospitals from being overwhelmed and it's saving lives. Um, and I think at the end of this, when we come out and look back, I'm hoping that we will say, or some people will say, you know, what was that all about? Because our, it really wasn't that bad. We didn't have as many lives lost as we had predicted, but that's the whole point. Social distancing and these measures are working to have that impact. So that means, yes, it was a, it was a success. So that's my hope. I, I just want people to continue to know that when you're at home, you are safe. I know there's a lot of anxiety out there, especially if you turn on the news. But if you are at home, you are, are safe. Uh, so please keep staying home. You're making a huge difference in the outcome of, of uh, this trajectory. Thank you. Wow. Well, I I think I can speak for Mariel and me. This has been probably the, the best conversation we've had so far. So thank you, Dr. Donlin, and thank you for your service. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you so much. Oh. You're welcome. Thank you for allowing me to be here to share my experience and and uh, see you guys on on the uh, computer. It's good to see the interwebs, the the five G. <laughs> well, we don't know when we'll be back, but we wish all of our listeners uh, a very safe journey through this pandemic. Please uh, don't touch your face and wash your hands. Yep. Stay at home, tip your delivery drivers, and we'll see you on the other side. I'm Vincent Salomino. And I'm Marielle Dodato. And this has been NJ Voices. Thanks for listening. <laughs>